Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. One of the most life-changing things that will happen to them. And Jesus moves them out of the fog of grief and despair and sadness, a place of faithlessness into a place of joyful hope. And he, I pray, will do that for us this morning. To see him more clearly. To hold more firmly to the hope he gives us. And Dr. Luke, in his typical way, in his methodical, investigative way, which he talks about in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, why he's writing this, writing this account, he litters the passage with eyewitness details. Did you notice that as it was read out? Hope it triggered in your mind. What, what, why has he included that? Things like the name of one of the travelers, had that conversation with him, gave him the space to be able to, um, for other readers, for other listeners, to check out the account. 
we're told that the name of the village and the distance they traveled. Well, why? Because that's really where it was. This was a commuter route that would have been well known from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We're even given unusual facts that the disciples were kept from recognizing Jesus. That's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because if you wanted to write an account that makes you look good, you'd be, oh, I recognized it straight away, like our very clever people in the congregation this morning who saw the picture and knew exactly what it was. We'd be like, oh, yeah. But no, here the authenticity is seen in the fact that those things aren't made up. It is how it happened. The fact that we're given this Bible study, we're told about a Bible study, the fact that they decide to then walk four hours back to Jerusalem straight after, it is an extraordinary encounter. It should push us. It should make us question things. But as we meet these two people, Cleopas named in verse 18, and possibly his wife or a close friend, they're not in a good place, are they? They're spiritually and emotionally, things are down, and this is just quite simply the first point. They have a faith that is flattened. Thanks, Frank, if you can flick that on. That should be on the PowerPoint slide. Their faith was flattened. Their hope is lost. And both of these people are part of the larger group of disciples. Look at verse 9. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll see there that there were the 11 gathered together and all the others. That's the women coming back from the tomb talking to this larger group. And Cleopas and his wife or companion was definitely part of that group. And they've been following Jesus. They've seen the shocking events of Good Friday and the crucifixion. And as we meet them on the road to Emmaus heading home, the atmosphere is not great. They're downcast, we're told, verse 17. They're no doubt feeling desperately let down. They've got each other, and as they're chatting to each other, they're trying to process what's happened. You find yourself doing the same, don't you? I find it particularly after coming away from funerals, thinking of just the journey home, and you're just going through everything, the memories, the chatting about who was there, but also their life and what it's all about. And sometimes there's just silence as well as you're working this stuff through. But they felt desperately let down. The one person they'd pin their hopes on is dead. Within six days, Jesus has gone from being cheered into Jerusalem with crowds waving palm branches right through to executed gruesomely on a cross. The friends are in hiding. His body has gone. The tomb's empty. The women who went expecting to embalm a dead body come back talking about angels, saying that Jesus is risen. And in verse 11, we're told by their close friends, their words sounded like nonsense. Again, if you're making this account up, that might not be something you keep in the final edit. <laughs> we didn't get it, and the people closest to us sounded foolish. Their hopes are crushed. Life can often feel like that, can't it? A series of letdowns. It isn't the box of chocolates where you just pick out another sweet and everything's fine. And for those two travelers, God's promises seemed empty. So much had changed in such a short space of time. And I bet each one of you in some way knows how that feels, don't you? You've all gone through that. Maybe you are going through things like that that are testing you at this time, where it feels that God's promises are empty. But at that moment, Jesus appears and walks with them. And it's interesting, isn't it? We as readers are brought into the secret. We see behind the veil. For reasons that will become clear, the two travelers don't recognize Jesus. 
And in fact, Luke tells us this is a spiritual issue. This is something that's in God's hands. Verse 16, they were kept from recognizing him. You see, Jesus, even here in this encounter, is in control of this meeting. Um, And we're let in to see what takes place. To have been brought into the inner circle of what God is doing so that we can be blessed and strengthened. And the fact that Jesus draws alongside them in this time of despair is a great illustration, isn't it? A great truth of his care, his compassionate heart for his people. Even for us today, he is the one who gets alongside us in the midst of difficult times. He is the good shepherd. He's with us in the valley of tears. He's in the confusion. He's in the anxiety. He's in the hopelessness. He's gone through hell and come back to make sure we don't ever have to travel there. But it also shows the authenticity, again, of this gospel text. If we were writing it from a human perspective, what would you do? You'd have the disciples recognizing straight away, high fives, we got it right. Ah, bit of banter, Jesus, you kept us waiting a few days. What's going on? But no, that's not how it happened. In his infinite wisdom, Jesus doesn't give a quick fix, and we find that really uncomfortable. We want the light bulb moment immediately. Fix it now. But he says no. He's walking with us. He's walking with these close friends who have followed him. And he holds back. He holds back but gives out in a different way. Their grief on this long walk home is the place he decides to gradually reveal his truth. Have you thought about that in your own lives? The difficult things you go through, the tough times. Do you actually think they're a providence of God to actually learn more about him? to encounter in some deeper way? Or is it an inconvenience to push through and get into better times? Jesus holds back but continues to give so that where they need to understand, where there are gaps, that they need to see things differently, to strengthen, to bring sight, he will reveal. And he will go through them with the darkness into light. So how does he help? Let's look at this. If we've got faith flattened, let's look at firing up faith, which I think is where the text goes. We see faith fired up and hope restored, but how does he do it? Firstly, he simply asks questions. Did you notice that? Typical Jesus way, asking the questions, and he listens. Now, Cleopas and the friend think this fellow traveler has just come out of a cave or something, Listen to the way he puts it. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? In other words, where on earth have you been? He seems to be the one person who doesn't know what's going on. It's dripping with irony, isn't it, as this conversation is going on? And Jesus' answer would blow their minds. Yeah, I, I was in paradise, like I promised to the guy on my right. I remember going into work in the city center the morning after the Manchester Arena terror bomb, terrorist bomb, 22nd of May, and it was the day after 23rd, 2017. Everyone there knew what had happened in town. The atmosphere in the city, it was weird. You could walk in, you could sense something had changed. There was shock. There was fear. There was a subdued, what is going on? The armed police, the military were everywhere. If someone had said, what's happened? Why, why is Manchester like this? Anyone would be shocked. Haven't you heard? 
In the same way, the death of Jesus wasn't hidden. It didn't happen in a small corner. It was headline news. But it just didn't make sense. You can hear the frustration, can't you? This deep disappointment in Cleopas's voice as he explains it. Look at verse 20 with me. It's about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was really the one to bring in God's kingdom. We were backing him. And then he throws it away, gets himself killed without a fight. And what does he say next? And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. You see, stranger says Cleopas, the women who we know well say they've, they've seen these angels saying Jesus is alive. We're not sure if it's emotion or getting our hopes up. What, what's going on? Verse 24, then some of our companions went to the tomb. They found it just as the women said, i.e. it's empty. There's just some bloodied grave clothes. But they did not see him. We checked out the evidence. There's nothing there apart from the one big thing, an empty tomb. No historian denies that. Remember, this is, again, a big sign of authenticity in these accounts. The 11 disciples and the other followers were not expecting the resurrection. You don't make this stuff up. They weren't expecting it. They weren't looking for it. They were already getting themselves ready and used to the idea that Jesus was dead and buried. Will we look for another Messiah, have another go, see if we get the liberation that way? Or do we return to our day jobs is what the 11 were thinking. Let's go back to fishing. They were preparing for life without him. That bitter disappointment, that flattened faith is so easy to appreciate. And if we're honest... Again, we need to be honest that we feel this towards God at times, surely. What flans your faith? Is it when you feel he has let you down? Is it ill health? Is it a bereavement? Is it work not going to plan? Is it bullying at school? Is it being left out of a friendship group? It doesn't make sense. We can't see where Jesus is in all of it. And yet God has promised to be a shelter and a refuge. Our, our saviour and our faithful Father. Even this morning, I was just reading in a psalm these words that just went, oh yeah, of course, it connects here, straight away. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's like King David singing about it, and here we see it in Luke 24. Our hearts, our desires, you see, our loves, what we want are in constant need of being reordered by God's love, by his spirit. He needs to reshape those desires so do we trust that he cares enough for us he listens he asks the questions and he listens run to Jesus with your questions with your frustrations with your hopes that feel tattered he hears and that's where the restoration begins. Jesus then helps them to understand God's promises. He corrects their faulty uh, thinking. In verse 25, he said to them, 
And this is quite strong, isn't it? How foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, the disciples' problem was that they had not understood the promises of God about Jesus in the Old Testament. And to be honest, I don't blame them. I need help with it. (laughs) But the answer's there. Jesus is saying God's given us everything we need to know salvation, to know the Messiah. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? It's, that's what's revealed. For them, a crucified Jesus is just unthinkable. They wanted the conqueror. Take out Rome, set things up, let's have peace. And Jesus says, you need to change your thinking. The Messiah, the chosen one, had to suffer. Then there's glory. And the profound truth that Jesus makes is that you can only truly understand the Old Testament when you see it all points to him. That sounds extremely arrogant, doesn't it? That the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to him, and yet it makes the most sense of the Old Testament scriptures. Because even if you read them without any reference to Jesus Christ, you come to the end going, is that it? nothing's changed Malachi winds up and there's a massive cliffhanger in fact he's saying look forward who's going to come it's going to be the day of the Lord you've got to read it looking for someone to come and fulfill this and right from the start from Genesis to Malachi it's all about me Jesus is saying I'm the fulfillment that's even more staggering that he says the Old Testament is where you will see him suffering that this idea of dying on a cross isn't made up. What a Bible study that would have been. And it's one that he would have repeated over the time that he was with them. We see that in the next section in Luke, in verses 44 to 47. And I'm sure there's loads of different scriptures that were being pointed to. The serpent crusher of Genesis 3, the judgment of the flood and the salvation of Noah by faith, by building an ark, being a picture of rescue of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. But then the Lord intervenes and provides a sacrifice. Exodus with God's rescue, that's the big one. A liberation that comes from a tyranny, an enslavement, and one that is given by a lamb's blood so that judgment doesn't fall on a household. Psalm 22, where David makes it clear that the forsaken, innocent, dying king is rescued by God. These are just a handful. Hosea 6, verse 2, with its reference of being restored on the third day to life with God. These third day motifs, these coming back to life motifs, are there in the Old Testament. And these references are only scratching the surface. In the ESV study Bible, which I know Julia should have in hand with her at the moment, there's a fantastic reference at the back of the Bible. There's a superb article by Professor Vern Poitras, which is called The History of Salvation in the Old Testament, showing book by book how it prepares the way for Jesus Christ. I was looking at it the other day. It's not exhaustive, but even just in the book of Genesis, I counted 82 verses that he refers to that start to show the plan of salvation and how to expect the Christ. And when I transferred that article into a Word document to read through and go through, 
the whole document is 81 pages long. <laughs> verse by verse by verse with a little explanation. Bang, 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 bang. And if you want it, you can have a chat with me. I'll email you the PDF. It'll give you some good bedtime reading. But that's what we're talking about. It makes sense. You've got to do the homework. That's the problem. Most of us go, no, I haven't got time. Rather watch Netflix. Or like me, oh, I've just managed to count those in Genesis, job done. <laughs> you know, no, now pick up your Bible and start reading. If you're really serious, don't come saying, oh, it doesn't point to Jesus when you haven't even done the basics. There's that famous chapter in Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You read that passage and you have to ask the question, who is the him? Who's doing it? And there's only two answers. It's Jesus or, as people say, it's Israel, the people of God, carrying it. I can't see how it's a community suffering like this that's salvific. Isaiah says your sins are wiped away because of this one person's suffering. This is what we've got to wrestle with. And Jesus is saying, guys, it's here. And I'm not condemning you for you not getting it. I'm helping you see it so that you can trust the promises of God. Now, God doesn't promise an easy life. He doesn't promise total healing now. He doesn't promise total ease and a sinless, victorious life now. But he promises to never leave us, to always forgive, to never lose us, to always lead us. He promises to bring us safely into his kingdom when he wraps up this human history to begin the new chapter that will never end of his kingdom, the new heavens and new earth. That is what he's leading us into. That is what he's doing, even talking with these two on an Emmaus road, which we probably will never visit in our lifetimes. He's drawing alongside them as he draws alongside us as we open up his word. And maybe we just need to be reminded of that fact. There's a remarkable story. Back in 2004, it happened in New Zealand, um, off, off the north coast, a place called Wangaroo, where Rob Howes and his 15-year-old daughter and friends were swimming, and all of a sudden, a pod of dolphins encircled them, came around them, and started swimming around them and sort of herding them into a smaller group. And Mr. Howes told the newspaper that the dolphins started to herd us up. They pushed all four of us together by doing tight circles around us. Obviously, it's quite unusual, not something he'd experienced before. And he explained that he had attempted to break away from the group and get out of it, and the dolphins actually pushed him back in. And then he saw what he described as a three-meter great white shark coming towards them. And it appeared to be repelled by the dolphins doing this protective ring dance or whatever around the, the swimmers. And interestingly, the, the, the lifeguard in his patrol boat who came out saw this as well and verified, yeah, there was definitely a great white out there and these dolphins were, were circling them and before we could get that. But if dolphins 
in God's great providence, know how to protect human beings from a shark, how much more, how much more does the creator who designed this know how to protect us, our loving Heavenly Father, bringing us into his kingdom? His promises are not weak. He does not let us down. And we need to be reminded of that this Easter. If you're feeling flat, if you're feeling let down, whether that's by someone close to us or you just feel your faith isn't sparking, come back to God's word. There's the power. He loves you. He will not let you go. He is reliable. And, and this is where we see that it isn't just a head and heart encounter. So thanks, Frank, if you can just flick on the next slide. This, this final point that here... Jesus isn't just giving an academic exercise. Read your Bibles and you'll be fine. He, meet, he changes them from the inside. There's a heart encounter. The two go to Heather, together, head and heart. And our emotions, they're transformed all by him. Because we start to see that the companion's gloom and sadness may be lifting. What do they do? They invite him for a meal. I mean, hospitality in Middle Eastern culture is such that you do this stuff no matter how you feel. But if it was me, I'd go, eh, he can sort himself out with some fish and chips as he goes on a little bit further. You know, it, we're grieving. I've got other things to deal with. But no, come into our house. We want more. There's an expectation now. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Wow. There's a moment. There's an encounter here. And it's mind-blowing. He's here one moment, he's gone. What? But it doesn't matter. Like, he's with us. Something's changed. He opened their eyes. And it's no coincidence that this is during a meal where bread is broken and a prayer of thanksgiving would have been given. But bread is broken. Luke's gospel is full of people having meals and encountering God's grace. We've, we looked at it in the Life series with Levi. And then again with the woman who is forgiven, there's a meal going on there. They're places of experiencing God's grace. Where they were once blind to the truth about Jesus' identity, they now see it clearly. They now see him clearly. And this is really important for us, because it'd be easy for us to say, look, if only I'd been around when Jesus walked the earth, I would have believed. If I'd seen the calming of the storm, if I'd seen 5,000 fed or been part of that, yeah, I would have believed. But there were many who saw all of that, even the resurrection, and still did not believe. Because to see Jesus as he really is takes a spiritual miracle. It is a gift of God who works in our hearts and minds. It's one we need to say, Lord, do in my life. Please give me that gift. And that is Luke's point. All three of these stories in Luke 24 show us that God's word is explained and people are changed. In verse 8, the women remember Jesus' words. The angels give them a message. They run back. They're changed. They go with this message. He's risen. Here on the Emmaus roads, the disciples' hearts are burning within them. As they hear God's word explained, that's how they describe it. It wasn't a boring Bible study. This has changed them. And their eyes are opened. And then in verse 45, as we looked at last week, the same happens as Jesus meets with the eleven and the other disciples. 
He helps him understand God's word about himself. In each case, it's the same process. God's word about Jesus being explained, hearts and minds on fire. Eyes opened, minds opened, hearts changed, faith fired up. And today, the same process is happening. We don't need to meet Jesus physically. That will come. It will be glorious. It will be life-changing in an eternal way. But we don't have to meet Jesus physically. We meet him now in his word. His spirit is at work, even right now, which is exactly what Jesus explained would happen. As we read God's word expectantly, we will meet him. He will come to us. He will speak to us. His spirit will enlighten us. We will be transformed, hearts and minds, to see him as he truly is, to understand how to live in the situations he's placed us. This isn't a dry academic thing. It is real-life experience, and it's worked out in the everyday situations we face. We know it and we feel it. We feel it and we know it. Eyes opened, minds opened, hearts changed, faith fired up. I hope you're expectant. I hope you're expectant that God will meet you each day. I hope when, even when it just feels like opening up the Bible just doesn't make sense, that as you read and say, Lord, speak to me, he will answer that. Something will get under your skin. He will use it to help you see a connection more deeply. He will help you to see that he is walking with you and showing more of himself to you in this moment. We use Christianity Explored uh, as a course to help people engage with the gospel. And I love the stories of real life. Um, thanks, Fred, you, uh, Frank, you've put it already up. That's great. That these, The pictures here are of different people giving their stories, and you can watch the videos online at that website address. I'd encourage you to do it just as a reminder of how God is at work. You've got Rob there, whose girlfriend became a Christian, and that changed his life. Totally unexpected. You've got Debs who started reading the Bible while she was high on heroin and God spoke into her life. You've got um, Artie who is so honest about how she rejected her Christian upbringing, rejected God, and yet in a dark time in her life, God drew her back to himself. And if we went round each of those who profess faith here and now, as we heard in the Life Series interviews... God being at work, breaking in, making sense of life through his word. And look at the response, this incredible response here from these two. From downcast, they go to say, uh, running back to Jerusalem makes sense right now. That's at least four hours walking. The food, the meal, everything finds its perspective. We've got to go back and tell people who is alive. Who is here? This matters. And as a church family, my prayer is that we know more and more of the trustworthiness of God's promises. That's why I'm praying for us. I'm praying that we will know the yes in Jesus Christ to his word. That our hearts would burn as we study the Bible, as we read it, as we look at it, as we have our questions being answered, whether it takes a moment, whether it takes 10, 15 years. And that joy, that love that leads us to meet Jesus 
where we are, meeting him here. And as we celebrate Lord's Supper today, as we break bread and drink wine symbolically, I'm praying expectantly, and I hope you are, that his spirit will encounter you, that he will fire up your faith as we do this, that we'll be able to, in his strength, go on and serve tomorrow morning, this time tomorrow, wherever you are, whoever you're with, knowing he is with you. He is giving you the power of his resurrection to live his way. And that that will bring hope and love and peace and a new joy to this city, to our neighborhoods, to our colleagues. Because that is the work Jesus' resurrection does. He says the story's only beginning. There's a kingdom that will come. And he's lovingly in charge of it, now and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you're the Lord in charge. And I pray, again, just for those open hearts and minds to be able to receive from you. And as we come to share the Lord's Supper together, Lord, speak to us. Heal us. Bring restoration. Bring new insight. For your glory. Amen.